Now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Is the glass half empty or is the glass half full? One of those perennial questions of life, a common question, a bit of a cliche to be sure, that I'm sure each of us have been asked at one point in our lives or have asked others. Is the glass half empty or half full? Now, obviously, if we had a glass of water that was filled up exactly halfway, then either way of phrasing that would be true. The glass is both half full and half empty. Both ways of saying it are objectively true. But what we're getting at in that question is often, are you the kind of person that would be prone to describe that glass as half empty or half full? To describe it as half empty, you see, is to mainly notice what isn't there. It's mainly to see what is lacking. Yes, there may be water in there, but half of that thing is empty. And that's where the emphasis lies. To describe the glass as half full is to notice what is there. It is to see what is provided and present. Sure, it may not be totally full, but half of it is. Underneath this uh, question is a deeper question. Are you prone to see and focus upon and think about what is good in your life, in the world, or upon what is bad in your life and in the world? Here's another question along similar lines. Do you find it easier to complain or to praise? Do you find it easier to complain about someone or something or to praise someone or something? Which comes more naturally? Clearly, we complain when our minds are set upon something that we think is not good and it upsets us and we just spontaneously burst out with, Isn't this terrible? Isn't he or she awful? We praise when our minds are set upon something that is good, true, beautiful, praiseworthy. And then we spontaneously erupt in, isn't this great? Isn't this wonderful? So which comes more easily to you, complaining or praising? Is a glass half full or half empty? And which way of living and being oriented to the world appeals to you the most? Today is the feast day of St. Barnabas. We read of Barnabas mainly in the book of Acts. And he is referenced several times by Paul in a few of his letters. Barnabas was a Christian in the time of the Apostolic Church. He is first described in Acts 4, verse 36. 
Did you know his name is actually Joseph? Yeah, his name is Joseph. Uh, But the apostles call him Barnabas, which Luke tells us means son of encouragement. Isn't that a wonderful description? How would you like that to be the nickname that someone gave you? What would that say about you, that you are a son or daughter of encouragement? Encouragement was a virtue associated with Barnabas early on. That's how Luke initially describes him. That's what his name means, and it's only ever used. Never Joseph. It's only ever used moving forward. To encourage someone is to lift up their spirits. It is to give comfort and consolation. It is also to embolden them in a belief or a course of action. And Barnabas was evidently a great encourager in, um, a great encourager of the faithful in the life of the early church. In chapter 4, verse 37, he sells a field and gives the money to the apostles to distribute to the poor and needy. That's the original uh, description of Barnabas given by Luke as a son of encouragement. And in chapter 9, he plays a crucial role in the life of the Apostle Paul, then known as Saul. Remember Saul? We've talked about him before. He was a Pharisee persecuting the church, going from town to town, seeking out Christians to bind them and drag them to be punished. And if the death penalty was suggested, he would cast his lot with that. And he actually, in Acts 7, held the coats of the men who stoned Uh, Stephen to death. Stephen, the first Christian martyr, uh, sanctioned, approved, rejoiced in by Saul. Now, this Saul was on his way from Jerusalem to Damascus to imprison more Christians there and bring them back to Jerusalem before the Sanhedrin to be punished. And on his way, he meets the Lord on the Damascus road and a light shines upon him. Jesus reveals himself to him, says, I've chosen you to be my chosen vessel to bring my name before the Gentiles. And Saul from that is converted. But on the other side of that conversion, there is a lot of fear and suspicion on the part of the Christian church. Right? Why, why wouldn't there be? Uh, he was the, the inquisitor. He was the uh, Gestapo. Later, Paul says, when I brought the Christians before the judges, I tried to make them blaspheme. He tried to get them to do it so he could then punish them. Right? This is Saul. And now he's saying, oh, I've received Jesus now. What do you do with that? And in fact, there was a great degree of hesitancy in the early church. Acts 9, 26 says, when Saul had come to Jerusalem, back from his Damascus journey, he came back to Jerusalem and attempted to join the disciples. But they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. Right? So there it is. They did not believe that he was a disciple. But, next verse, but what? But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. 
So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. Barnabas was the man who mediated between Saul and the apostles and disciples in Jerusalem. When others refused to believe out of fear, uh, refused to receive him, this son of encouragement heard, believed, received, and welcomed him in. And here in chapter 11, which, which will be our sermon text today, the epistle, before the epistle reading, Acts chapter 11, if you'd like to turn there. Here in chapter 11, verses 22 to 30, we read of further actions and character traits of this man of God. And we begin in verse 22, which says, The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. The report of this, the report of what? Well, this invites us to look a little bit before where our reading begins, going back to verses 19 to 21. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. At this point in time in in, in church history, the the church was established, but largely that, that church was made up of Jewish believers, Jewish Christians. Jesus, his 12 uh, apostles were all Jews. Uh, the message was going to the Jew first, but also to the Greek. But for now, it was going out to the Jew first. Pentecost, where thousands are converted, that was a Jewish festival. And those present were Jews and some proselytes, some Gentiles who were circumcised and became Jews. So that's largely the church at this time. And so those who are scattered, they're going out, they're preaching the word, but they're, they're doing it to none except Jews at this point in their synagogues and so forth. But verse 20, there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also. The Hellenists is another term for Gentiles, uh, Greeks, uh, non-Jews. They spoke to them also, preaching the Lord Jesus, verse 21, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Right? The gospel is now going forth. It's breaking in to the Gentile world, not just within the Jewish world. The Hellenists are being converted. And uh, the enfolding of the Gentiles into the people of God was a surprising matter and a controversial one in the early church. It raised all kinds of questions because as Jews, they had to observe the ceremonial law, clean and unclean foods. Gentiles do not observe that. They could potentially get themselves unclean by associating with Gentiles. So there were all these rules against eating with a Gentile or going into a Gentile's home. And uh, so the church is largely made up of Jewish Christians. They're not quite sure what to do with the idea of Gentiles, uh, non-Jews accepting Christ, uh, who weren't previously accepting Moses. And uh, in Acts 10... Cornelius is a Roman centurion. He has charged over 100 men. And he and his household are converted to faith in Christ. They receive the Spirit and are baptized. And this caused a bit of a stir in chapter 11, verses 1 to 18. The controversy was about how, uh, in the course of that, Peter went into his house and he stayed with him and he ate food with him. Right? What's he doing? 
That controversy was decided in favor of recognizing the Gentiles are brought into the church. And so the apostles and the brothers say in in, in verse 18, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. So that's some of the background here. The gospel is now going out. And in Antioch, men of Cyprus, men of Cyrene, Jewish Christians from Cyprus and Cyrene originally are now in Antioch spreading the word to Gentiles and it's just exploding, right? People are accepting it and coming in droves to faith in Christ. And the church in Jerusalem hears about this. They hear of the success of the gospel there and particularly of how Gentiles are joining in and they choose to send Barnabas to Antioch. Sending around ministers in the time of the apostolic church was no small endeavor. It's not like nowadays. It's hard enough on our bishop to have to fly in planes all over the place, but he can get wherever he wants to be uh, in a day, in half a day. Um, Really, nowadays, we can go almost anywhere in the world within 24 to 48 hours because of air travel. But, you know, this is the first century. Antioch was 300 miles north of Jerusalem, if you average 20 miles a day on foot, that would take you 15 days just to arrive. Okay, so keep in mind that uh, the journeys that are described in the book of Acts are often significant and time-consuming ones. Traveling such a large distance for such a large amount of time was worth it to the early church. One commentator writes, The Holy Spirit leads the way in the mission of the early church. But the church is often sent to these places to witness to what the Lord is already achieving. And that's what's happening here. The Holy Spirit has gone gone before. Uh, The Holy Spirit's empowering his people, these men of Cyprus and Cyrene, to spread the gospel in Antioch. And he's blessing its success. And now the church in Jerusalem wants to send someone there to see this great work, to witness it and to assist in whatever way they can. The traveling ministers in the church served to strengthen the bonds of unity and fellowship among the churches. It made the church visited feel that they were not just an isolated community, but are part of something larger. Something similar like that happens today when we are able to have guest preachers or a visitation from the bishop has a similar function. So Barnabas is sent. And in verses 23 to 24, we read of what Barnabas found there. And here Luke, the author of Acts, gives us a description of Barnabas's character. He writes, When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. Verse 23 gives us the actions of Barnabas upon his arrival. And verse 24 tells us where those actions come from, rooting it in his character. We'll begin with verse 24, the description of his character. This is a remarkable, uh, glowing description. Luke tells us he was a good man. The word good can mean morally upright, but it can also have connotations of kindness and generosity to it as well. Okay, so a good 
man, a good woman, does what is right in the eyes of God. And a good man, a good woman, takes interest in the interests of others and is inclined to do them good. Proverbs 20, verse 6 says, Most men will proclaim everyone his own goodness, but a faithful man who can find. We might feel bewildered sometimes by all the negative examples of living and ways of life that surround us constantly in advertisement shows, social media. We might think, where can a good man be found? In Barnabas, we find one, according to scripture. He was next full of the Holy Spirit. Full of the Holy Spirit. That same designation is applied to Stephen in Acts chapter 6, verse 5. Both Stephen and Barnabas are described as full of the Holy Spirit. Now, all Christians are filled with the Holy Spirit. All Christians have the Holy Spirit indwelling them. We are all temples of God. And yet, we know it is possible to grieve the Spirit by the way that we live. To resist the Spirit to fail to walk by the Spirit. And so to be full of the Spirit is to not do those things. To be full of the Spirit is to put no hindrance block in its way, in his way. It is to experientially know, yield to, and follow the Spirit in your life. It is to be characterized by the Spirit in evident and visible ways, bearing fruit of the Spirit in your life and conversation. The Spirit shows in these ways. And next, he's described as full of faith. Full of faith. Here the word faith uh, can refer to the virtue of trusting in Jesus. And that's likely what it is here. Trusting in Jesus. He was a good man, yes. But that is because he was filled He was full of the Holy Spirit. His goodness isn't from himself. It's from God, the spirit at work in him. And that spirit he received and continues to possess through faith in Christ. The life he lives in the spirit is a life of faith in Jesus, of trust in the saving mercy of God shown through Jesus Christ. Okay, so he's good. He's full of the spirit, but he's not His righteousness is not in himself. He puts his faith elsewhere, in God and in Christ. So that's his character, verse 24. Now let's look at his actions in verse 23. First, he came, he arrived at Antioch, he made the long journey, and he saw the grace of God. That's a remarkable statement. It doesn't say he saw some people there. It doesn't say he saw the great things that were being done. It says he saw the grace of God. Sometimes when we think about the grace of God, we might just kind of have this nebulous category floating about in our heads, like some abstract idea. But the grace of God is not an abstract idea. It is an attribute of the living God that he shows in his concrete actions toward
towards us as his creatures. It is the grace of God that you are alive this morning, that you are here in church among the Lord's people. Your family, friends, money, possessions, health are all grace. Your food is the grace of God to you. Every good thing you have, you have by the grace of God is a demonstration of, a manifestation of, an expression of God's grace. Even faith and repentance are gifts and graces of God given to us. Think about it. In ourselves, we're dead in our trespasses and sins, right? Ephesians 2. We are hostile to God, Romans 8. We do not submit to him. And we hate the light and do not come to the light, lest our works should be exposed, John 3. So what does God do? He gives life to the dead. He makes enemies his friends. He takes out hearts of stone and gives hearts of flesh. And he grants faith and repentance in Christ, in whom our sins are all washed away. You see, Barnabas didn't arrive in Antioch and see the results of human ingenuity and clever church growth strategy. He didn't arrive in Antioch and see the cleverness and skill of man in eloquently uh, preaching or marketing in such a way that people came to faith by human mechanisms. No, he came and saw the grace of God, evident, because it is God's grace that builds his church. It is God's grace that makes sinners into saints, unbelievers into believers, pagans into covenant members. As actually verse 18 says, remember we quoted earlier, to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Barnabas saw the grace of God and next he was glad. Right? Because he saw the grace, he was glad. He was full of the Holy Spirit, full of faith, yes. He was also full of joy. Right? He was glad. He rejoiced. Why did he rejoice? Well, first, sinners had repented. There are few joys so great to the Christian as witnessing one who does not know Christ, one who does not follow the Lord, come to saving faith in Christ. Come to know Christ turning from their sins and to the Lord, being transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, no longer destined for everlasting condemnation and wrath, but for everlasting joy and delight with God. Barnabas rejoiced because sinners had repented, but also he rejoiced because Christ's kingdom was expanding. He loved above all the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he rejoiced to see the name of Christ being honored and praised. As Revelation 5 says, the lamb who was slain is worthy to receive honor and glory and blessing. The son is worthy to be praised and worshiped by his redeemed people all over the earth. He is worthy. And so Barnabas rejoices that the Lord is being recognized and worshiped. He saw the grace of God. He was glad. And then the final action here, he exhorted them all 
to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. He exhorted them. That word could also be translated encouraged. It's the same word in Greek. It's a different form of the same word translated in chapter 4 as son of encouragement. The meaning in either case is similar. Barnabas encourages or exhorts the disciples to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. With gratitude for what had happened in the past, the grace of God, and joy in what was happening in the present, Barnabas then shifts his attention to what lies ahead for these new believers. And what lies ahead is a life of faithfulness to the Lord. Barnabas isn't naive. Sometimes with a glass half full, glass half empty kind of thing, it's like if you're half full, you're naive about things. You're not actually recognizing the hard things or the difficulties of life. No, well, Barnabas isn't naive. He knows there will be difficulty ahead. Persecution awaits. Temptation awaits. And so he seeks to prepare them for it, encouraging them to hold fast to the Lord Jesus through it all with steadfast purpose. There's a story in Homer's Odyssey um, of a man named Odysseus. He's he's traveling uh, with his crew across the sea, uh, trying to get home. And uh, at one point, he sails past the sirens. The, The sirens are these beautiful women at See who allure sailors by the sound of their song. Okay, so the siren song is referring to that. Um, now, the thing is, um, if you were to do that, if you were to hear the song and then be drawn to it and direct your ship there, you would crash your ship and shipwreck on the rocky coast around them and perish. And it says they're surrounded by the bones of those who had done so. So Odysseus knows this is happening, and to get past them, you have to plug your ears with beeswax so you can't hear the song or you'd have to be tied down. You'd have to be tied to the ship and that's what happens to Odysseus. He is tied to the mast of the ship with ropes to prevent him from going out to them. And he tells them beforehand, tie me to the mast and don't let me down no matter what I say. And he does, when they go past, want to go. And he does command them to let him down. And he pulls on the rope so much that he's hurting himself and cutting into himself. But he makes it through. Why? Because with steadfast determination, he clung to the mast. (laughs) He clung to his ship. He did not go astray. And so it is for us in our fight against temptation. It takes steadfast purpose and determination. So... Put in the beeswax, have some friends tie you to a mast so you don't kill yourself running after what will destroy you. With steadfast purpose, Barnabas says, we must remain faithful to the Lord. Now, the result of this is that a great many more people are added to the Lord, as we see at the end of verse 24. So that keeps happening here in this text. This is an outpouring of the Spirit. Okay, and this is Antioch. Antioch was a major city of the Roman Empire. Okay, it was 300 miles north of Jerusalem uh, in Syria. It was the capital of the Roman province of Syria with a population of half a million or more. In this time, only Rome and Alexandria in Egypt were larger. 
And this city, says one commentator, boasted the highest population of Jews of any Roman city. And here we have Jews and Gentiles turning to the Lord in great numbers. And so what does Barnabas do when he sees this continue to happen? He goes and gets Saul. Verses 25 to 26 say, So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. A great work of God was happening, and Barnabas wanted to get Saul involved. He knew that Saul was to be the apostle to the Gentiles. He knew his story. He presented him to the apostles. And so he wanted Saul to be in the place where it was happening. Right? So this great work of the Spirit is happening. Droves are turning to Christ. And Barnabas, he thought of Saul. This was no doubt an encouragement to Saul, as it was an encouragement to the Antiochian church to have Saul among them. Antioch will later serve as Paul and, Barnas, Paul and Barnabas's home base for future missionary journeys. And it is here at this time that Luke tells us it's in Antioch that the disciples of Jesus were first called Christians. Christians. The name uh, was given, presumably by opponents, who were mockingly or ironically referring to our belief in a so-called Christ or Messiah that we kept talking about. Those, those Christ people, right? Um, but in, in, in short order, the followers of Jesus began appropriating the name for themselves. Yes, we are the Christ people. We are Christians. Finally, briefly, in verses 27 to 30, we read of how uh, the prophets from the church in Jerusalem come to Antioch and predict a famine that's going to come on the whole land. The Antiochian church decides to send a financial gift to the church of Jerusalem. That's interesting because the famine is coming on the whole land. <laughs> Prophets are telling them, they're like, oh, we should send a gift to Jerusalem. It's like, well, won't they need gifts too? Why would they do that? Uh, well, think about it. It was members of the Jerusalem church who went up to Antioch and brought them the gospel. Right? They brought them that spiritual benefit. And now Antioch wants to return the favor. They want to send, uh, you know, they already have the gospel, right? So, so they're going to send material benefits to help them through the coming hard time, right? Uh, gift giving shows the unity of Christians and the church of Jesus Christ together. And Paul, Saul and Barnabas are the ones appointed to bring that gift. Barnabas, once more living up to his namesake, sent from Jerusalem to Antioch to encourage the saints there. He then returns back to Antioch with an extra apostle and a gift to the saints in Jerusalem. Wherever he goes, he seems to be bringing encouragement. In conclusion, I want to return to the questions posed at the beginning. Specifically, do you find it easier to complain or praise? I think many of us, if we're honest, are too often prone to complaining. Too often grumbling murmuring, bemoaning all the things that are wrong, or that we don't like. And we live in a fallen world. We are fallen people, so cynicism comes easily. Ingratitude comes easily. There will always, always, always be something to complain about. 
complaint is opposed to encouragement. Encouragement is seeing the good. Encouragement is seeing God's good and gracious work, even in the midst of sin and imperfection, seeing the good and gracious work of God, rejoicing in it, giving thanks for it, calling attention to it, praising it, and then saying, let's keep it going. Barnabas was not the son of complaining. He was not the son of murmurings and grievances and, or, 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 or diatribes. He was the son of encouragement. Acts 11 says he was full. Okay, so is the glass half empty or half full? Well, are you full? Barnabas was full, not half. He was full of the Holy Spirit, full of faith, full of gladness. He was a good man. Why? Why was he so full of, of, of faith and gladness and encouragement? Remember verse 15. When he had seen the grace of God, he was glad. He saw the grace of God and therefore he was glad. He was full. Do you want to be full of joy, faith, The spirit, like Barnabas, was full. One thing you could do is pray for eyes to see the grace around you. Pray for the grace to notice grace. May the Lord give you eyes to see all of his goodness towards you in Christ. All of his goodness expressed in creation. All of his sheer undeserved kindness in your life that you are continually surrounded by. May the Father strengthen you with his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Let us pray. Father, we praise you for uh, your work in the church. We praise you for your work in your servant Barnabas. We pray that we would, uh, as Paul says, keep our eyes on those who walk according to the example um, that we see here. Lord, give us faith. Fill us with your spirit. Give us the grace to see grace in our lives and to encourage one another with the very encouragement and comfort that Christ has given us through the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.